All right, good morning, everyone. We'll go ahead and get started with our Sunday school class, and we'll open up with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for everyone who is able to make it out here this morning. Uh, Lord, we just ask, God, that uh, you would just help each and every one of us, no matter what we've carried throughout our week, no matter what has been the monkey on our back or the burden on our shoulder, Lord, that we would leave it on the doors of the, the steps of the church and just leave all of our problems outside. They're not going anywhere. You know, and they'll be there waiting for us when we walk out of church. And who knows, maybe they'll even run away and we won't even have that problem anymore. Who knows? But Lord, we're going to separate this time and dedicate this time to you. Lord, we ask you would sanctify our hearts and our minds and our bodies and help us to focus on you. Uh, we don't want any distractions. We don't want the enemy harassing us. And so, Lord, we just rebuke the enemy right now in Jesus' name and just command him to leave because this is no place for him. He has no legal right or claim here. We ask your Holy Spirit to just come and open up our hearts and minds to make us receptive to your word and to the truth of your word. And, uh, Father, we love you and we praise you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to be focusing on Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. But before I do, I just want to touch a little bit about um, the serpent that we talked about last week. There's a few points that I would like to bring out before we kind of move on so we can kind of complete that thought. Uh, Moses was very careful regarding the words he chose when he penned Genesis. And he used the word nakash. There's other words for snake. There's other words for serpent. But he used the word nakash because it embodied who the enemy was or who the enemy is. It embodied Satan so well because nakash is a noun, it's a verb, and it's an adjective. Depending on the different pronunciation and where the uh, vowel marks are in the Hebrew word. So the noun of nakash uh, is, is a snake. It means snake. But it also means uh, uh, like a brazen. Uh, and, and so this is kind of the word that was used too when the uh, serpent was lifted up in the wilderness. The bronze serpent that Moses made. Uh, so the children of Israel could look at it and be cured from the venomous bites of the uh, uh, snakes in the wilderness. So that's noun, nakash. It means a bronze serpent. Could refer to the color. It could be, refer to the iridescent uh, scales, sometimes how the sun reflects on a snake skin. Uh, as a verb, nakash means divination. And it specifically means deception. And so Satan was deceptive as the serpent. So that embodies the verb of nakash. The uh, adjective for Nahash means shining one. And so it, rever it refers to his, uh, his divine essence as a divinely created being, as, a, as an angel, as a messenger, as a heavenly throne guardian, as a seraph. And the Latin for, for Satan kind of draws this out because the Latin is Lucifer, and it means light bearer or day star. And these different... Um, the noun, the verb, and the adjective of nakash, the serpent, the divination, deception, and the shining one, is all kind of interconnected as it describes Satan in Genesis 3, uh, Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, and Isaiah 6. And you can see these themes of shining, burning, brass, wisdom, uh, deception, um, you know, through the description of Satan in these passages. Okay, so just wanted to kind of uh, clear that up before we moved on. Uh, so we're getting into the curses of Genesis 3. So the deed has been done, the forbidden fruit has been eaten, and now it's time to pay the piper. It's, it's time to uh, uh, 
dole out the consequences to the disobedience. And so let's start with verse 14. It says, Adonai Elohim, the Lord God, said to the serpent, Because of this, cursed are you above all livestock and above every animal in the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. So this is describing the anatomy of a snake, the anatomy of a serpent, because uh, Satan chose to embody himself in that imagery when he presented himself to Adam and Eve. And so symbolically, God is cursing him in a symbolic way. He says, just as a serpent, just as a snake crawls on his belly, you're going to crawl on your belly. In other words, he's basically saying, Satan, you're going to be humbled. Because the position of somebody being on their belly represents subservience. It represents humility. It represents, uh, you know, like if you're before a king, you're going to bow down to a king. Sometimes when we pray and we're desperately seeking the Lord, we will lay on our faces and lay on our bellies before the Lord. So it's a position of humility. So Satan here is being humbled by this curse because he's called the prince and power of the air. He was a throne guardian. He was basically God's right-hand man as a seraphim or as a cherub. And uh, he's lost that position in heaven. And he was given dominion over the earth, but yet he, when Adam and Eve were created, he says, no more. Now mankind has dominion over the earth. He has dominion over the livestock, over the you know, fish of the sea, et cetera, et cetera. So here is this creature that is part divine, if you will, meaning part spiritual, because it's a spiritual being. We're made spiritually in the image of God. And we're also kind of an animalistic being that we have a physical body and we have physical needs. We need to procreate. We need to eat. We need to sleep. We need to expel waste. So it's like we're kind of the best of both worlds. And uh, Satan is, is humiliated because we were chosen over him. God has given dominion over the earth to us. And now, because of Jesus, because of Yeshua, we have the power and the authority in his name to be able to cast out demons and to be able to take charge against the spiritual enemies of God, Satan and his fallen angelic cohorts. Because through the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. So we have that power and the authority through his name. Satan hates that. So he's being humiliated in this curse because God says, you're going to crawl on your belly. And there's a prophecy, I think it's in Isaiah, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it says that in the end time, people are going to look at Satan, and they're going to be shocked because they're going to say, this? This is the man that deceived the nations? This is the one that caused all this trouble? Because in our minds, we build Satan up to be this big, bad wolf, this big, horrible entity. But really, compared to God, he's nothing. Not saying that we should be flippant and disrespect Satan as far as, you know, underestimating his powers and his abilities, but sometimes we give him way too much credit. <laughs> um, so it says, um, above all livestock, um, oh, okay, on your belly you will eat dust. You will eat dust. You know, a lot of times when people are in a race, uh, they're in the lineup and the gun's about ready to fire, and they're about ready to take off, and maybe one racer will look over to another and says, you know what, you're going to eat my dust. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run faster than you. I'm going to win this race. I'm going to leave you in the dust. But what is man? We are made of dust. So Satan, in essence, is going to eat our dust. We're going to be ahead of him. We're going to be above him. Uh, he's not going to control us. He's going to eat our dust because God has favored us and put us ahead of Satan. So symbolically, he's eating dust. Uh, and, and so that dust kind of refers to mankind, kind of refers to us. 
You'll eat dust all the days of your life. Now, the important thing that I want to get to, Genesis 3.15 is called the Proto-Evangelium in theological circles. Sounds like a big fancy word, but proto means first, evangelium means gospel. This is the very first presentation of the gospel, the good news of salvation, the good news of redemption um, ever in Scripture. This is the very first account. That's why it's been labeled the first gospel or the proto-evangelium. So we're going to go really slow. We're probably going to focus most of the class hour on this verse because it's so important. And I think in modern-day Christianity, we've really missed the gist and the importance of this verse and how vital it is and how important it is. Now, let me start off by saying that we as believers in Messiah Yeshua, we as believers in Jesus Christ, we as believers in the Bible, the divine inspiration of the, the Bible, the inerrancy of Scripture, you know, I can ask any one of you, do you believe in the resurrection? Wholeheartedly, you'd shoot your hand up and say, yes, yes, I believe in the resurrection. Because Paul said, if it wasn't true, we of all men would be most miserable, right? We believe in the resurrection. We believe that Jesus multiplied the fish and the bread. We believe he walked on water. We believe God parted the Red Sea. We believe that a donkey spoke to Balaam. We believe that a serpent spoke to Eve. We believe that an axe head floated. We believe in all these different miracles and all these different supernatural events that take place in Scripture, but yet there's some things in Scripture that modern-day Christendom says, nope, 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 I'm not going to believe it. Well, what makes this instance different than any other instance in Scripture? What gives you the right to differentiate to say this is supernatural and this is allegorical? And because we live in the age of enlightenment, because we live in the space age, the scientific age, it is sadly bled into the theology of Christianity where we have replaced hardcore, uh, tried-and-true doctrinal uh, edicts from the church fathers. And we says, oh, well, they were primitive. Uh, they didn't know what they were talking about. They don't know the science that we know, so what they say can't be true. So we're going to reject what they say, and we're going to take a modern interpretation. Uh, a lot of this stuff you will not hear in most theological seminaries or Bible college because they scoff at it and they, they, they oh, that's just, that's fantasy. That's fairy tale. That's just too hard to believe. Any harder to believe than somebody being raised from the dead? Any harder to believe than an axe head floating? Any harder to believe than a donkey talking? Come on! So what am I getting at? Genesis 3.15 uh, hearkens to Genesis 6, which we'll read in a minute. So let's read this verse. It says, God says, and he's addressing Adam and Eve. He's addressing the serpent. He's addressing Satan. He says, I will put animosity. I will put enmity. I will put hatred between you, Satan, and the woman. Between your seed. Ooh, wait a second. Your seed. He's saying, God is saying that Satan has a seed. What are we talking about when we say seed? We are talking about offspring. We are talking about uh, um, descendants. We are talking about procreating and continuing a race. So it's interesting that he says Satan has a seed. He's not talking to a snake. A snake didn't commit this crime. A snake didn't, didn't tempt Adam and Eve. The temptation came in the embodiment of a serpent. It wasn't a literal serpent as we think of. Um, because, the, like I said, the word nakash means snake, divination, 
deception, and shining one. It embodied what a seraph was, what a throne guardian was. So, I will put animosity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, the seed of the woman. That's interesting in and of itself because a woman doesn't have a seed. A woman has an egg. And it is the male component of the spermazoa that creates the blood of the baby. And it's actually the seed of the man that is impregnating the egg of the woman that produces offspring. So it's really interesting the verbiage here where God says the seed of the woman. This is prophetic of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, the virgin birth of Messiah Yeshua, because Jesus had no earthly father. Moses, or, uh, Mary was, was, uh, was, in, was impregnated, if you will, by the, by the Holy Spirit. And it, that harkens back to the creation because it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was up on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. So God was going to take this watery ball of the earth, and he was going to create life from it. So the earth was symbolic of the womb. So what is a womb? A womb is just a, a sphere full of fluid, full of water. And it was the Holy Spirit that was hovering over the womb of Mary that started the creation process in Mary that produced Yeshua, Jesus, because it's the seed of the woman. I will put animosity between you and the woman, between your seed, the satanic seed, and, the, and uh, her seed. He will crush your head. In other words, the male offspring that's born from the seed of the woman, this divine Messiah, this Redeemer that's coming, will crush your head, Satan, and will crush the head of all your cohorts, and you will crush his heel. He will crush your head, and you will crush his heel. So this kind of harkens to the, uh, the fulfillment of prophecy. When Jesus died on the cross, his heel was crushed when that spike went through his feet and was nailed to the cross. His heel was pierced. And if you look at the Shroud of Turin, many people will, uh, you know, will debate back and forth whether it's authentic or whether it's uh, a, a hoax. Me personally, in the research I've done, I believe it's the genuine article. I believe it is the burial shroud of Yeshua the Messiah. And if you look at that shroud, there is a piercing in the heel, a pool of blood at the heel. His heel was crushed in fulfillment of prophecy and fulfillment of the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. This verse, Genesis 3.15, embodies the good news, embodies the, the message of salvation, the message of redemption. So it is through the woman that will conquer the serpent, will conquer, conquer the evil one. And he will crush the head of Satan by defeating him and making and rendering all of his curses and all of his deceptions powerless. Well, at the same time, the snake or the serpent will crush the heel of this male redeemer, this male offspring of the woman, which happened on the cross. So that is, that is what most of us know and understand of this verse, but it goes so much deeper. It goes so much deeper. Um, let's see. I've got here as a reference Romans 6.20, and I'm not, <laughs> I'm not really sure why I have that there, so I'm going to read it, and it'll probably come to light. So Romans 6.20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free... Uh, you were free... 
with regard to righteousness. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. So this Proto-Evangelium is talking about how, as a result of the fall, we are a slave to our depravity, we're a slave to our fallen nature, we're a slave to sin, and our uncleanness and our lawlessness, because it was a lawless act that Adam and Eve took the forbidden fruit. And at that point, God had every right to just totally wipe us off the map and totally do away with us because we committed high treason against the king. God is father, God is God, God is a king. His law is the royal law. It's the royal edicts of the kingdom. And if you go against the king and his laws, you've committed treason, not just rebellion, not just self-centeredness, you, it's treason. And treason, the result of treason is death. And Paul fleshes this out in the Romans Road. For the wages or the price, the payment of sin, the result of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he had every right to do away with us, but he saw that we, he loved us so much that he didn't want anyone to perish, but all should come to repentance. So this communion with God in the beginning before the fall, where God came down in an anthropomorphic form, I believe he came in the guise of Yeshua the Messiah. Because John 1 talks about in the beginning was the word, Jesus, and the word was with God and the word was God, showing that Jesus is divine, showing that Jesus is part of the Godhead, showing that he is one with God in unity with God. And he is God in the flesh when he came as Jesus Christ. So because Adam and Eve were flesh and blood, but they were also spirit, God came in the form of, of, of a human being and walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day and fellowshiped with them. And uh, John further goes on to say that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so this all goes back to the pre-fall. So when Adam and Eve sinned and took of the fruit that God said not to, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that relationship was severed. That relationship was broken. There was no longer that intimacy there. And so there was a danger that was presented. They've already taken of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. If they take of the knowledge of the tree of life, in conjunction with taking the, the fruit of the uh, knowledge of good and evil, they will live in an eternal separated state from God, which could be one definition of hell. Now, as you guys know, I'm a tried, true, firm believer in a literal burning hell, but yet a Christless eternity, an eternity without God, an eternity with, without fellowship and connection with our Creator, that is a type of hell, being separated from the source that gave us life. So to prevent this, they were kicked out of the garden. So it was a loving act. It wasn't an act of punishment per se, like, you know, wagging your finger and I'm going to spank your little bottoms. I'm going to take you behind the woodshed. He kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden to safeguard them so they wouldn't take of the tree of life and thus live forever in a sinful, separated state from God. They could not be redeemed at that point. They could not be saved. The protoevangelium would have been thwarted at that point. There would have been no Genesis 3.15 if they stayed in the garden and took of that fruit. So it was a loving act that, that God did. Uh, so, let us go to Genesis chapter 6. And we're going to get into more detail in our later lessons regarding Genesis 6. But to truly understand Genesis 3.15, we've got to understand Genesis 6. Now, when humankind began to multiply on the face of the ground, the daughters were born to them. Okay, we're just talking about regular human beings, females. The sons of God 
Saul, the daughters of men were good, and they took for themselves wives, any they choose. Then Adonai said, My spirit will not remain with humankind forever, since they are flesh. So their days will be 120 years. This is not saying necessarily that the longevity of a human being will be 120 years. He's saying that there's 120 years before the flood. 120 years before I wipe out all humanity. They have 120 years in order to repent. That's what he means here. The Nephilim, your translation probably says giants. Nephilim, very mysterious word. The word Nephilim means fallen ones. It means giants, and it's usually translated as giants. But there's some translations that stay true to the Hebrew that they feel that it, that it couldn't do justice to translate it into English, so it leaves it in the Hebrew. And this translation is one of those translations where it says the Nephilim. So it says the Nephilim, the giants, were on the earth in those days and also afterwards, meaning after the flood. There were Nephilim after the flood. Og, king of Bashan, Goliath, who fought David, those were, those were Nephilim, those were giants. Uh, whenever the sons of God came to the daughters of men and gave birth to them, those were the mighty men of old, men of renown. So what? This is crazy. This is weird. What is this saying to us? Daughters of men and sons of God. Daughters of men is humans, human beings, human women. Daughters of men. Sons of God. Up until the New Testament, sons of God, the only definition, only definition in the entire Old Testament of sons of God is angels, the divine counsel, God's heavenly creations, whether they be in the form of, of that, uh, that angelic creature that Ezekiel saw, where it had the body of a man and four different kinds of heads and several different wings or whatever. These are talking about God's heavenly divine counsel, his angels, heavenly beings, heavenly creatures, what have you. Those are the sons of God. We were not called sons of God until Jesus Christ, Messiah Yeshua came, and we were able to be redeemed, and we were able to be saved, and that's when we were, were called sons and daughters of God. Up until that point, this is the only definition. So this is what they're going to teach you if you go to a run-of-the-mill Bible college. They will say that the daughters of men was the holy line of Seth, because Seth followed God. And the sons, or the sons of God were, uh, that's what I meant, the sons of God were the, the holy line of Seth. That's who the sons of God were, because they were, you know, they were following God, they were keeping the commandments, they worshipped the one true God, the holy line of Seth, sons of God. That's what they'll tell you. It's called the Sethite theory. The, da uh, the uh, um, daughters, the daughters of men, according to the Sethite theory, is the evil deceptive fallen line of Cain. That's what they'll say. So it says the Sethites, the holy Sethites, intermarried with the decadent fallen line of Cain. And how is that going to produce giants? How is that going to produce fallen ones? How is that going to produce men of renown? It's just two different human genomes, different gene pools of humanity coming together like it always has been. If you look at the word sons of God, in Job, what does it say in Job? One day the sons of God appeared before, uh, before him, 
Satan was among him. He says, hey, Satan, what have you been doing? Oh, nothing much, just roaming to and fro about the earth. Have you considered my servant Job? So it was almost like an angelic divine roll call where the sons, the, the sons of God, the created heavenly beings appeared before God for a council meeting, for a roll call, for inspection, and Satan was among them because he also is a son of God, although fallen. So you had these sons of God, those that remained loyal to God are the good guys. The ones that remained, uh, that, that rebelled against God, they're the ones that fell with Satan during the fall between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. They're the ones who rebelled against God because Satan said, I'm going to exalt my throne above God. I'm going to exalt my throne up in, in the heights of the north. I'm going, to be, I'm going to rule over the stars of God, meaning I'm going to rule over the angelic hosts because stars was another name for angelic host. And rebellious angels are called wandering stars in the letter of Jude. So again, sons of God, this is what the early church fathers believed. This, is, this was the pervasive only interpretation of Genesis 3.15 up until the 19th century when the Age of Enlightenment came and we're like, oh, well, that's fairy tales and we don't believe in that because that's too fantastical to believe. So then that's when the Sethite theory came. Me personally, I will always side with the, with the apostles. I will always side with the early church fathers. I'm not going to take on this new interpretation that's just a few hundred years old. That's why, personally, I don't believe in the pre-trib. It's only a, it's only a theory that's only a, hundred, a couple hundred years old. It has no root in the apostles and the early church fathers. So why would I believe it? Those that were closer to Jesus, those that were closer to the Messiah, is going to know more of the truth than us 2,000 years removed. Because you have 2,000 years of man's interpretation in history that muddles what they were taught and what they knew in the first century. So to me, it makes no sense. To just adopt something that, and that's the same with the annihilation theory of hell. And we've already went over that. That's, that's only like a hundred years old. It's a, it's a recent theory. It has no roots in the first century believers. It has no roots in the apostles. So I reject it. And I don't find it in scripture in the Greek and the Hebrew. So a lot of people say, well, seed of the serpent, you know, how's that possible? Isn't, isn't angels and heavenly beings spiritual beings? Yes, they are. I don't have all the answers because I don't know a whole lot about physics, but what I do know is that when angels or heavenly beings appeared on earth, they appeared in corporeal form. They appeared in solid form. They could eat food. They could touch and grab things. They weren't just these ethereal, wispy spirits. Remember, when, when God came in bodily form to visit Abraham, he had two angels with him, and those two angels were sent to Sodom and Gomorrah to retrieve Lot. Well, Abraham made a meal for them all, and they all ate. And uh, when the angels were sent to Sodom and Gomorrah, the evil men of Sodom said, bring these two men out. We want to have sex with them. Why? Because they were used to angel flesh. Because part of the pagan religions was that, you know, they knew, they knew that these heavenly divine beings fell from heaven, rebelled against God and fell from heaven. And they cohabitated with the human women, creating these giants, creating these Nephilim, creating these fallen ones, these angelic human hybrids that have no chance of redemption because they're not human, have no chance of redemption because they're not angels either. They're this perversion, this abomination of a mix between angel and human, the Nephilim, the giants. They were recorded to be nine feet, 15 feet tall. They were recorded to have six fingers. 
and they worship the pagan gods. This is where the Titans came from. You know, Clash of the Titans? The Titans in Greek mythology were these quasi-divine human, half-human, half-gods. Hercules was one of them. He was half-god, he was half-human. Thor, he's half-god, half-human. And that's where we get these mythological stories throughout all of the different people groups and all the different pantheons is, is these stories that started in Genesis 6. So what had happened is after these Nephilim were born, uh, they, they instituted their own religions. These fallen angels became their own gods. They, 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 they became Baal, they became Molech, they became Dagon, they became Ishtar, they became you know, Chemosh, they became all these Canaanite gods and goddesses. And they set up their own temples and set up their own religion. And then you had the temple prostitution to where if you were uh, worshiping these pagan gods, you would actually have to have sex with one of the priests or priestesses in order to commune with those gods. So when these evil men of Sodom, these perverted men of Sodom, saw these angels, they recognized them for what they were. We want to commune with them. Bring them out, out to, to us so we can have sex with them. So they, they, didn't, they knew that they weren't just regular men, come, strangers visiting the city. I believe they knew that they were from heaven. They were divine beings. And because of Genesis 6 and because of this tradition of, of, of human women cohabitating with uh, these fallen entities, and see what had happened is when they fell, uh, according to apocryphal and rabbinic literature, they fell to Mount Hermon. And they set up their Mount Olympus and they made a pact together. We rebelled against God. We're in this for the long haul. So we are going to, we're going to rule this earth. We're going to pervert humanity. We're going to keep them from serving God because we know the proto-evangelium. We're going to thwart God's plan. We're going to stop it, nip it in the bud because we want to rule the earth. We hate these human beings. They took our place. So we're going to deceive them and fool them and, and drag them to hell. If we're going to be in hell in the end, we're going to take them with us whether by manipulating the DNA to create these unredeemable hybrids or just deceiving them until they die. And so what happened during the transfiguration, which happened during the Feast of Tabernacles, by the way, Sukkot, Jesus was transformed. He was transfigured. He became a shining one, basically sending out a calling card and giving a message to these fallen demonic, these fallen angelic beings say, hey, you've deceived the world. You've taken the world under your control. I'm taking it back. I'm redeeming it. And there's nothing you can do to stop me. And by two or three witnesses, let everything be established. Moses and Elijah showed up with Jesus and said, yep, it's true. You guys' days are numbered. And Peter is like, oh, wow, Moses and Elijah are here. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. Let's build a tabernacle, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. You have a lot of this ridiculous stuff. People say, oh, you know, Peter was going to set up shrines. No, nothing of the sort. If you understand Judaism, you understand the scriptures. It was the Feast of Tabernacles, and anybody who was in Jerusalem had to build themselves a sukkah, a tabernacle. So that's why Peter said, we want to fulfill the commandments. We want to build tabernacles for them. If they're going to stay for the celebration, this is great. So this is probably blowing a lot of your minds, but this was the first and only interpretation of this passage up until about the 19th century. So like I said, if we're going to believe in miracles, we're going to believe in the raising of the dead, we're going to believe in floating axe heads and the parting of the Red Sea, why aren't we going to believe this? And see, Satan does nothing new. He recycles what he does. His deception, his deception is always the same. He just changes the motif. You know, it's kind of like you've heard, you've heard the analogy. If I have dog crap and I spray it with perfume, 
put it in a nice box and wrap it in a pretty bow, it's still going to be dog crap. Well, that's what Satan does with his deception. He deceived mankind by the fallen uh, entities coming down, cohabitating with these human women to create these giants, these Nephilim, these Goliaths, these Ogs, these Rephaim, as the, as the Hebrew says. But now, you know, that's a little too fantastical for the space age, so let's just change the motif. We're going to come as aliens, and we're going to say we're your space brothers and space sisters. We're going to say that we seeded the entire universe and, and we actually created you. So what do they do? What are the accounts of these alien abductions? Women are abducted, men are abducted, genetic material is taken from them, and a lot of these women are impregnated. Three months later, they're, they're, they're abducted again, and then all of a sudden, they're no longer pregnant. Nine months later, they're abducted again, and they're shown their hybrid children. Sounds like Nephilim to me. There is no evidence whatsoever that these aliens come from another star system or another planet. None whatsoever. No concrete evidence. Is it a real phenomena? Absolutely, because there's too, many, there's too many people that are talking about it. And not everybody's having mass delusions. There's physical evidence left, left behind. Scars, surgeries, things taken from them, implantations. It's Satan trying to deceive man again, using the whole Nephilim Genesis 6 account and just rehashing it into a modern format to make it more acceptable and palatable for humankind to be deceived. So it says that they were giants in those days and afterwards, before the flood and after the flood. And there's a prophecy that so in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. So does that mean we're going to see a return of the Nephilim? Guess what? The government is on the edge of full disclosure of the UFO phenomena. I wouldn't be surprised within our lifetime they'll say, yep, we've been in contact with these aliens since Roswell, and here they are, and they want to give us free energy, and they want to help us out. Deception. I'm not going to be fooled. I'm not going to be deceived. You, it's crazy, but you know what? Ten years ago, they're saying, nope, nope. UFOs don't exist. Nope, nope, there's no such thing. Nope, nope, crashed weather balloon. And now guess what? They're showing these videos and saying, yep, yep, our Navy, our Air Force has been tracking these UFOs for, for years. Yep, they're real. They've actually said that now. All the television shows and all of the things are programming us to accept this deception when it comes. And these people who are not in church, who don't know the scriptures and don't know what the first century believers and church fathers said about these issues are going to be deceived. Well, pastor, this is too crazy to even talk about in church. Well, where else are we going to talk about it? This is a real issue for people, and this is keeping people from salvation because they don't know what aliens are. They don't know what the paranormal, they don't know what ghosts are. They think they're their dead relatives. They're demons. They don't know what Bigfoot is. They don't know what all these paranormal things, but there's so much that people believe this. And you've got to answer it from a biblical standpoint, or they're going to go to New Age and get their answers. They're going to go to atheism and get their answers, and the, their blood will be on our hands because we're thinking they're crazy, and we're not believing them. We're brushing them off thinking, oh, there's no such thing. That's just ridiculous. The Bible has answers to everything that's happening on earth. Everything. And we've just got to look, and we've got to know the truth about this. So, Noah. Let's see here. It says 6-8, but Noah found favor. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the genealogies of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless among his generation. Blameless. That word blameless, blameless in Hebrew. Do you know what that means in, in the Hebrew? Blameless. 
Some translations say pure. It not only means that he was spiritually righteous, it also means he was genetically, physically pure and righteous. In other words, Noah's family was one of the only families left on earth that was genetically pure. They were not corrupted by these fallen entities. So therefore, they were still redeemable. And that's why God used his family to to procreate mankind. And Noah was trying to preach 120 years, preach salvation and redemption that this flood was coming to get the rest of the pure human beings on the ark to save them, but they wouldn't listen. So it was just Noah and his family. It says Noah was blameless. He was pure. So who who did Jesus come to die for? Did he come to die for dogs? Did he come to die for parakeets? Did he come to die for our gerbils? Did he come to die for primates? No. He came to die for human beings, for mankind, genetically pure human beings, mankind. So what if something is created in a lab, or what if something is created by this spiritual stuff that is not human? Are they able to be saved? Can a demon get saved? They're not human. He didn't come to die for the angels. He didn't come to die for angelic human hybrids. He didn't come to die for the Nephilim. They are not humans. They are not pure. They are not the seed of the woman. They are the seed of the serpent. They are the seed of something else. Therefore, they are unredeemable. This also, Genesis Revelation is all one entire cohesive book. Because in Genesis, it's talking about the Redeemer, the seed of the woman, the Messiah, the Messianic line, pure human beings, talking about the sons of God, the seed of the serpent, fallen uh, angels. And it says, so in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing genetic anomalies that make us question, are these people really human? And a lot of people think I'm crazy for saying that. But again, this is the original interpretation of the first century and the original interpretation of the church fathers that came after them. Not until the 19th century did the Sethite view become a thing. So, mark of the beast. The mark of the beast. What marks you as a beast? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's going to be a chip in the forehead and a chip in the hand. Or it's going to be some sort of mark. I'm sorry, but how is a chip or how is a, a tattoo mark on my hand or forehead going to exempt me from salvation? Unless it changes your DNA. Unless it marks you as a beast. You won't be, you won't able to be saved anymore. So they're coming up with, technology is scary. Artificial intelligence is, is on the verge of becoming sentient. Meaning it has its own, it, it has its own self-awareness, has its own thought, it becomes an entity. It is a created man-made entity. Technology is coming to that point, and it's scary. They're already experimenting in China of mixing animal and human DNA because they want to create super soldiers. We want soldiers that see in the dark, so we're going to take the genetic uh, uh, material that makes eagles and birds of prey see at nighttime or these nocturnal animals see at nighttime. We're going to put them in man so man can see. We want man to be able to breathe underwater, so we're going to, to, we're going to you know, genetically put parts of fish and porpoises to where they can breathe underwater. We want them stronger, so we're going to put ape DNA into them. The island of Dr. Moreau. It's illegal in the United States and Canada, but I think the shadow government, and you know, probably they're doing it on the slide, but it's open in China. They're doing this in China right now. 
Mixing animal and human DNA, that's Nephilim. These are unredeemable abominations. These do not follow the created order. You can't improve on God's creation. You can't make God's creation better. You, because you know what? The genetics, the way the genetics is, yeah, it's amazing and it's great that mankind has this knowledge and they can do a lot of amazing things. But it's, it's, it's the difference between a 357 Magnum and a buckshot. A 357 Magnum, I can hit a bullseye, dead center. A buckshot, ugh, I just hope to hit it. I'm going to hit it somehow because it's a widespread, right? That's the way it is with genetics. They can splice and cut DNA and put animal DNA into human DNA, but they can't make it precise and exact like a 357. They can only make it as precise as a buckshot because you don't know what's going to happen when, these, when they create these abominations. So the mark of the beast, how is people going to lose their salvation? Maybe it will be a chip, but will that chip be programmed with nanotechnology to actually change your DNA? and not make you human anymore. Will that be the mark of the beast? You're marked as a beast. You're no longer human, you're a beast. That's just another theory. To me, I never bought it that a tattoo mark or a, just a simple microchip would exempt you from salvation. Yes, it's a spiritual decision that I reject God and I follow the beast in the beast system. That's part of it, yes. But what makes you unredeemable? What's not to say that if it was just a chip, you can just chop off your hand and say, I renounce the beast and I want to follow God again. You're still human, so theoretically you still could be saved, but if you were changed and you were no longer human in some way, shape, or form, you would not be redeemable. And that is what Satan wants to do. And guess what? It's, done from the, it's, it's been from the beginning. Why do you think all these infocides, infanticides, these genocides happened? Guess what happened? Cain and Abel. What happened? Who, who killed who? Cain killed Abel. Why? Because maybe Abel was the seed of the woman. Maybe Abel was going to be the one that carried on the messianic line, that was going to produce this male redemptive Messiah. So let's get him out of the picture. So Cain kills Abel and comes along Seth. Can't kill Seth. What happens after that? Jacob and Esau. Who tries to kill who? Esau tries to kill Jacob. Because maybe Jacob is part of this messianic seed line. And if we can get rid of the messianic seed line, we can get rid of the Redeemer. If we can't corrupt the human genome with these Nephilim and with these giants, we'll just get rid of the seed line altogether and not have to worry about it. So let's kill Jacob. Jacob survives. Then Abraham comes along. Or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A Abraham. In the apocryphal literature, Abraham, same thing with Moses. Nimrod wanted to kill Abraham because it was prophesied that he was going to be the ruler, that, he, that from him was going to come a world ruler. Nimrod was the world ruler at that time. He couldn't risk that. So the apocryphal and pseudepigraphal literature says that Abraham was going to be killed. Tried to kill Abraham. Moses comes along. The Pharaoh decides to kill all the baby boys because maybe the messianic seed line is in one of these boys. We're going to kill them. Just let the daughters survive. And Moses survives, and he's part of the Messianic seed line. Then comes Joseph, right? And his brothers try to kill him. And then comes Jesus. Satan tried really hard to get rid of Jesus. See, I don't think that Satan knew that Jesus was the Messiah when he was tempting him in the wilderness. He said, if you are the Son of God, if you are this Redeemer, if you are this Messiah, turn these stones into bread. Bow down and worship me. Just on the off chance that this Jesus was the guy, but when the Mount of Transfiguration happened, they knew that Jesus was the guy. Let's get rid of him. Let's kill him. And they didn't know the full story. 
They said if they knew that killing Jesus would cause the redemption of mankind, they would have never crucified the Lord. Tables got turned. The demons were dancing and rejoicing when Jesus was dead in the ground for two days. Right? They thought, we did it. We got rid of the Redeemer. Mankind is us. We're going to take them all to hell with us. And then the third day, Jesus rose. And they're like, oh, crap. We've had it. This is what we've been dreading. This is what we've been trying to prevent since Genesis 6, since Genesis 3. This is what we were trying to prevent with Cain and Abel. This is what we were trying to prevent, and it's unstoppable. So now the only thing they have to do is just to try to take as many of you guys with them as possible because they know their time is limited. And even the demons that were inside Legion said, Jesus, have you come to torment us before the time? Before the time of our final judgment? They knew their time is limited. They knew they have a time limit. They know what their end is, but they're still foolish enough to think that they can somehow, and Armageddon is going to be their last stand and they're going to fail. Okay, we still, we still have a few minutes here. Does anybody have any questions? I know this is some heavy-duty stuff, but I want to bring you what the first century apostles believed, what the first century church fathers believed. You know, I want us to unlearn the lies or unlearn the deceptions that we may have learned through, through tradition. I want us to unlearn these things and, and get with the scriptures, what the scriptures literally say from the historical, contextual, linguistic content, context. Because there's a lot of people will say, for instance, they'll say, God is a wicked God. He's a genocidal God. He killed men, women, and children without prejudice. All the Canaanites were destroyed. On the surface, that seems like a legitimate argument, doesn't it? Why would God do that? Well, no, but the, see, the men, women, and children were destroyed in Canaan, right? When they were taken over the promise. What, 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 you know, I can understand men and women. Uh, yes, but those lines were destroyed. Judah married into the Canaanites, but his son Er and Onan, they were all killed. They were wiped out. So the Canaanite line among... Now, there were some Canaanites that, that did not... The Canaanites were the major family from Noah that the fallen angels cohabitated with, the Canaanites. That's who they decided to corrupt, is the Canaanites. The Philistines, there were seven Canaanite nations, the Hittites and the Jebusites and the, and the Hivites and the Philistines. And these are the ones that, that cohabitated with the sons of God, the fallen angels, and created these Nephilim. Because Goliath was a Philistine, was he not? Og was part of the, the line of Canaan. But there were other lines of Can because Canaan or uh, Ham had more sons than just Canaan. It was Canaan that was cursed, remember? It wasn't Ham that was cursed when Ham came and found Noah naked in his tent. Noah said, cursed is Canaan. You're like, why is Canaan cursed? He didn't do anything. Canaan was cursed because he is the one who decided to cohabitate with these fallen entities. And it was Canaan's line and the offshoots from Canaan's line that created these seven Canaanite nations that were infected with the Nephilim gene, that were affected with these fallen angels. They're the ones who created the giants. But there's other sons of Ham that was not genetically corrupt. These are a lot of the African peoples that we know today, a lot of the African races. That's where Ham came from. And uh, Shem, he was all the Arab and Jewish races or ethnicities, and Japheth was the uh, European and Chinese. That's why we have white, dark, brown, and black. That's why we have the different genetic colors that we have. And I'll explain that a little bit more when we get into Noah. 
Uh, okay, so where was I going with this? I kind of got off track. Okay, Canaanites, they say that, okay, uh, God's an unjust God because he wiped out men, women, and children. That, what, 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 why children? They're innocent. They're babies. They don't know right from wrong yet. They didn't do anything. And it was after the Canaanites were destroyed and whatever else Israel took over, he said, just kill the men, leave the women and children, leave the livestock. But with the Canaanites, he said, destroy men, women, and children and livestock. Don't take any booty. Don't take anything. Why? Because they were not genetically pure. So God is not a genocidal God. He just does not kill men, women, and children indiscriminately and without prejudice and without mercy. He killed that which was an abomination of his creation. That went against his creative order and creative law. He killed and wiped out that which was genetically corrupt and unredeemable. They weren't human. They were Canaanites that cohabitated. And it says that even the animals were impure. When you get up to Genesis chapter, uh, when, when it deals with Noah, that even the animals were unclean certain parts, certain sects of them. And this is where in, in mythology we get the cenotar and the minotaur, the fawns, and all these like half human, half animals that we see in Greek mythology, Egyptian mythology, where it's the humans with the dog heads or bird heads, because these fallen angels were, were corrupting God's creation, making abominations what God never intended to make because they were trying to mirror what was in the heavenlies. You had all these different hybrids in heaven, because you had, you know, these, these seraphim that were serpentine. You had these seraphim that were bull-like. And these false gods, these fallen angels were trying to recreate that on earth to set up their own kingdom to deceive the world. So they were manipulating God's creation and the genetics of animal and humankind to make things abominable and unredeemable to create things in their own image, not in the image of God. And so God had to wipe this out with the flood. So it was more than just man was sinful that he wiped the whole creation out, is that, that the whole creation become an abomination. So he was wiping out all the unclean, impure genetics, but it says that the giants were in those days and afterwards. So they tried the same trick again after the flood. And, it, and, and the prophecy says, as in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. So there's a lot of theologians that believe that what was going on in Noah's day regarding the Nephilim, is going to reappear some way, somehow. And that's a pretty scary prospect to think about. And it says that even if it were possible, the very, the, the very elect would be deceived. So don't be deceived. So if you believe in the resurrection, you believe in the healing of the withered hand, you believe in the parting of the Red Sea, you believe in fire coming down from heaven and consuming the sacrifice in Elijah's day, why do we not believe this? Why is this not taught? Oh, it's just too fantastical. We just can't believe it. It's like fairy tales. This is what the apostles believed, the early church fathers believed. And it's like we try to, if we can't understand the scriptures, we try to uh, put it in some way that we understand that doesn't even have anything to do with the scriptures because we're educated, we're enlightened. Yeah, we skip, or we skip over it. Exactly. Oh, let's just not even deal with it. So, okay. Uh, let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer, and uh, we'll continue with Genesis chapter 3 next time, where we'll get into the curse of the man and the woman. So we already discovered what the curse of the serpent is. Uh, okay, Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the, the wonderfulness and the depth of your word. Lord, enlighten our minds. Help us to understand your word so we can apply it to our lives so that we will not be deceived, because... Paul said we shouldn't be ignorant of any of Satan's devices, and we don't want to be deceived. 
And so, Lord, what's coming down the pike in the future through prophecy and through the news, it's going to shake a lot of people. It's going, to, it's going to make a lot of people fall away. So, Heavenly Father, we just pray, God, that you would just help us to be educated in your word uh, so that we will not be deceived. In Yeshua's name, in Jesus' name, amen.